You guys like the game Name That Tune? This is for Generation Xers here. Here we go. The world is a vampire. Sent to drain. Secret destroyers hold you up to the flames. And what do I get from my pain? Betrayed desires and a piece of the game. You guys know that song? So goes the opening lines to a Smashing Pumpkins song. Like a number of uh, mid-90s bands like Nirvana, for example. Uh, The Smashing Pumpkins were great at conveying what they thought to be the meaninglessness of the world. And their pessimism and cynicism kind of reaches a climax in its chorus, which says, Despite all my rage, I am still just a rat in a cage. I wonder what your assessment of the world is and your existence in it. In the face of sin, injustice, oppression, death, pain. How do you assess the world? From the Smashing Pumpkin song, there's a strain of pessimism that strikes a certain chord in us, right? But what might surprise you is that it ought to. It ought to. And the passage we look at this morning says exactly this. But lest you despair, thinking God's wisdom is equal to that of the Smashing Pumpkins, the Bible shows that their pulse on life is accurate only insofar as it describes a human existence apart from God. So they have an accurate pulse on life, but only insofar as their description is that of a human existence apart from God. Today we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, and you guys are probably familiar with the uh, Ecclesiastes' uh, tagline, which says, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's a really interesting book. You can go ahead and turn there now. Basically, if you open up your Bibles to the middle, you get to Psalms. Just flip a couple books to the right, and you get to Ecclesiastes. Uh, It's really an interesting book, which reflects the difficulties in this life, in this sinful world. But where sinful man trudges in hopelessness, God here introduces a very real hope. The point of Ecclesiastes is this, joy and meaning can only be found when life is lived in the fear of God. That's sort of the main summary today. Joy and meaning can only be found when life is lived in the fear of God. Uh, Ecclesiastes and the other wisdom books of the Bible, so for example, you can think here of the book of Psalms, Proverbs, the book of Job, uh, Song of Solomon. These books here offer wisdom for life. Some of you actually have memorized uh, some verses from these passages, and maybe they're the ones that are closest to your heart. And that actually shows that the wisdom literature is doing what it's supposed to, giving wisdom for life. I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have even memorized certain portions of Song of Solomon and hid them close to your heart. Um, But many people look at this book and they think that uh, this book is written by Solomon. So there in chapter 1, verse 1, this is written by a a son of David. Uh, but, But through the book, if you just go ahead and read it, let's say this afternoon... Uh, The author never comes straight out and says, this book was written by such and such. 
But throughout the book, he refers to himself as the preacher there in chapter 1, verse 1. Go ahead and look there. I'll read that. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Uh, at least it says preacher in our English Bibles. Other ways of translating this word can be like a teacher or assembler. So this is a guy who assembles people together in order to give them wisdom for life. So this assembler is assembling people, and it's, this is actually where the book got its name. Uh, so the root word for Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly. So here we have the preacher gathering people together, showing them how to make sense of their lives in this sinful world. And the first 11 verses of the book uh, are its introduction. The last handful of verses in the book, if you go there, flip over to Ecclesi Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We're going to be turning around a lot today in terms of flipping at different verses. Uh, from 9 till the end of chapter 12, that functions as the book's conclusion. And basically everything in the middle is one big long monologue about him reflecting on wisdom. Can it even be found? What does it mean for everything to be vanity of vanities? And he kind of goes from one topic to another, so it's kind of hard to outline the book. But we're going to be drawing out some highlights here today. Uh, look at verse 12 of chapter 1, and we basically have a pretty good summary of what the whole book is about. You see, he's going to teach us after having sought out wisdom for his very own self. This is like our, our older brother, our mentor and counselor, giving us wisdom that he's learned over the years. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So having lived and then having investigated as well as having failed, here he shows us that joy and meaning can only be found in living in the fear of God. And if you were to read through the book, you get the sense that he's like wearying himself out just looking for this wisdom. So look there at chapter 1 again, verse 2. We're just going to read the first handful of verses here. You get the, the feel of the whole book. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of of vanities. All is vanities. What does, a, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. So you get the sense there of what's going on here. This is weariness of life under the sun. It's, again, a very real picture of this life. It's, it's, it's encouraging because it says that we ought not need to hide what's really going on in our hearts and put masks on in our face when we turn up to church here in light of this seemingly 
meaningless existence apart from God. Now let's, look, let's look first to the fact that fulfillment can never be had in the things of the earth and this limited life. Fulfillment can never be had in the things of the earth and this limited life. Uh, the preacher pulls no punches here, right? Verse 2 again, vanity of vanities, all is vanities. I mean, how is that for the message to start off 2015, right? Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. You know those resolutions you may, might have made? Meaningless, vanities. But yet, this is the intentional theme of the book. It begins and ends uh, the book, actually. Look at 12.8. There again, you see this tagline. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanities. So here's this obvious cynicism about life under heaven or under the sun. But his intention, folks, is not that we lose hope and fall into some sort of crippling despair or, uh, or something like that, nor is it his intention that we adopt an it-doesn't-matter mentality. The preacher's frankness about the hollowness and emptiness of life under the sun is supposed to actually make us reflect on our own, our own very lives, see its own emptiness apart from God, and then make us turn to God in whom alone can joy and meaning be found. And the preacher goes about doing this and helping us come to this realization by referring to vanity 30 plus times. So in the Hebrew, it's called hevel. So one thing you could think about when you walk away from today's service, when you think about Ecclesiastes, just think hevel, everything is hevel. He seeks out everything done under the sun, one thing after the other, and reports that all is hevel. In English here, at least in my translation, it says vanity. King James Version says the same thing. This is similar to futility. And these words capture some of the meaning of hevel, but by no means does it exhaust it. So hevel can also mean something like a vapor, a breath. So if something is a fleeting vapor, it is something that's so insubstantial and transitory. But hevel, or as my English version translates it, vanity can also be translated as something like absurd. So we're going to see the preacher eventually talks about the injustices in the world, and he says that those things are hevel. But he doesn't mean that those things are insubstantial, but rather that he means that they are absurd. So hevel conveys the fact that life, this entire existence under the sun, is really beyond grasp. And he really does mean that the entire existence, everything, is indeed hevel. That's what under the sun means here. So if you read through the book, you see this recurring theme, under the sun. Uh, it's there in one three, there in 2.11, and it's life lived under the curse of sin. So if you're taking notes there, you want to know what under the sun mean here? It means life lived under the curse of sin. So you remember what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God? God then moves towards them and judges them. And because of his, because of his sin, God says that um, his life would be toil under the sun. And God says that it is there under the sun, under the scorching sun, that he would live and eat and die by the sweat of his brow. That's what you're supposed to think here about life under the sun. It's life in the curse of sin. And Ecclesiastes is a clear testimony of what this life is like. It's frustrating. 
At times it is, it is uh, absurd. And it seems like, it appears like there might not be any hope when we are trying to satisfy ourselves here with the stuff of the world. This is what happens here. Frustration. Hevel. So if ever you are frustrated by anything in, in, in the world, you think, Hevel! Okay? So let's note some of the, uh, the world's Hevel and then turn to see why meaning and joy is found in God himself. What are the things of the world that offer supposed satisfaction? The stuff that's really Hevel. Uh, we'll just survey some of them as we go along and move through the book. The first thing he brings up is world's wisdom. This is in one twelve to 18. I mean, imagine uh, setting your course of life to refine yourself through the wisdom of the world. You know, self-help has been all the rage and uh, proven to be so by the 688,643 self-help items available on Amazon. Uh, I mean, imagine yourself just saying, okay, I'm just going to refine myself by diving into, let's say, this one narrow aspect of self-help literature. And the wisdom of the world is what you, look there, 113, it's what you apply your heart to. That's what the king did. That's what the preacher did. It's what you seek and search out. In verse 14, this is the things that you see and what you observe. And in verse 16 here, the preacher acquires it. So you can just imagine him setting up his book. Uh, Brent Yamamoto, who, who attends church here, he's not here today. He's a speed reader. So you can imagine he just lays out all of his books. Uh, another speed reader is a theologian named Al Mole. He reads like a book a day, just, just tearing through it. And he can basically remember where everything is on every single page. Um, and he's sifting through all of the world's wisdom in order to refine himself. And you get the sense that that's what this guy is doing. He's wearying himself out, going through one book after another, one piece of wisdom after another. I mean, how many titles does one have to read to master the wisdom under the sun? Getting through that 688,000 books will only take you 800, oh, sorry, 1,800 years, almost 1,900 years. And that's not including all the titles that will be published in the near future, but yet some of us cling to this world's wisdom so badly that we just need to know the next best thing, that next piece of advice when somebody moves our cheese, as one title, self-help title says. What do we do when somebody changes something in our lives? And after his search, he judges this to be, look there in 114, um, it reads, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. He says in, verse, in chapter 12, actually, um, look there in chapter 12, verse 12, you know, he's telling his son, all the people who are listening to him, he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, the things that I, he's already written. Of making of many books, there is no end. And of much study is the weariness of the flesh. So that's the first thing there. The wisdom of the world. Hevel. But maybe you don't fancy intellectual stimulation. Maybe that's not you. Seeking through the world's wisdom. Tearing through everything the world has to offer. Maybe what you desire is pleasure. So he turns then and examines pleasure there in chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And this method, look there in chapter 2 verse 10. He says... Whatever my eyes desired, 
I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. So it's like, you know, before he's giving his mind to exploring the wisdom of the world, now he lets his desires just sort of let loose out of the gates. And he investigates all of these things. Look there in verse 3 to verse 8. He says, I searched with all my heart how to cheer my body with wine. You know, you got this vintage, that vintage from this region of the world, that region of the world. You can imagine him giving himself and uh, um, seeking to be a wine expert. Knowing everything there is to know about wines and uh, trying to develop a refined palate. Seeking maybe that this thing would give him wisdom. I made great works because, you know, he has this endless bank account as a king. I built houses. I made myself gardens. I made myself pools. I bought slaves. I had great possessions more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of the kings and provinces. Concubines I got. I delighted in the things that the children of men (coughs) delight in. The very same things that the world delights in. I gave myself to. You guys ever done this? You know what it's like to really give yourself to something, exploring the intricacies of the thing. And, and they might not necessarily be bad things, but we make them bad things because we actually hope in them as if they give us satisfaction. We, not, we might not make great works and build parks in honor of our own name for ourselves to stroll through, but perhaps the equivalent would be you renovating your own house. As if this thing actually gives you ultimate meaning and satisfaction. You know, growing your tomato garden with pansies. Or maybe giving yourself to real pleasure, something that makes you feel good. And then letting the delights of your eyes and the cravings of your own stomach drive your life. You can think of maybe all the Yelp elitists who are driven by their own refined palate, seeking out the best of foods. But at the end of the day, the next day, they're still looking for yet again another restaurant. We get the sense that he wearies himself with one thing after another after another. But look there what he says, verse 11 of chapter 2. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he looks at intellectual stimulation. He looks at pleasures. uh, But maybe there's something else that that, uh, you all fancy more than these things. Maybe you are driven more by achievement. You're driven by a legacy. You want to leave a mark on the world, a monument to your name. The king addresses this in 2, 12 to 23. You know, if anyone's going to think about legacy, it needs to be the king, right? Because a history is going to be written about the king, and then that king's history is going to be added to all the other king's histories, and then the king's going to be thinking, well, how do I differentiate myself from everybody else? How do I be original and do something new? Perhaps you too are wanting to define your existence and your achievements. Be the first maybe to graduate high school from your family. Be the first maybe to graduate from university in your family. Get a good paying job. Do something that no one in your own circles, no matter how small they might be, no one in your own circles has ever done before and so leave your mark on the world. But look what he says there in verse 12. 
What can man do? What can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. I mean, picture having racked his brain, this, this king here, racked his brain about what he could do that was unique. I mean, some people really think about this. How do I stand out amongst my own peers? Whether it be in clothing and what kind of boots they wear, what kind of glasses they have. But here, is he thinking about a kingdom? He says he can't do that. And so his plans for originality are frustrated. There goes making a name for yourself in originality. He'll always be a knockoff artist. And so maybe in the face of always being a knockoff artist, this preacher then turns to the sheer size of his empire. Okay, I can't do anything original, but how about the sheer size? But even there, look at 18. Even though he labors, plans, and builds, he says, I leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows if he will be a wise man or a foolish man. Right, this guy's going to undo everything that the king spent his whole entire life laboring and toiling for with the wisdom under the sun. And he can't even control if the guy after him is going to be a good steward of what he passes on. So look there in 2.20. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. Now here he's not saying that toiling and laboring is bad. Actually, not at all. Uh, he's not, nor is he saying that we should not leave a legacy. So in Proverbs 13.22 it says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Uh, but what he is saying here is that trying to find fulfillment in these things is really absurd. We can't even control whether our successor, or those that we pass our wealth on to, is going to squander it in a moment. So we spend decades and decades and decades laboring to build ourselves a name, and like that, maybe your own offspring will ruin that name, tarnish that name. So to bank on those things as if they actually offer fulfillment and meaning and satisfaction is equally as absurd. All these things fall into the category of vanity. And you see there in 2.11, he calls us a striving after the wind. Thank God in our God-given moments of sanity for Christians and non-Christians, we're able to sort of step, take a step back and uh, take a step back from the pursuit of the world's wisdom and pleasure and legacy, money, because he deals with that too, uh, and see what it is. It's foolishness. Like, we, we get the... You guys ever tied a, a ribbon on a cat's tail? Not that I have ever done such a thing. Uh, and the cat just will spin around trying chasing, chasing its tail, trying to catch that, that uh, ribbon. And I've never seen a cat do this for minutes on end. Um, I have done that. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of like similar foolishness, okay? If you, don't, if you don't, want, don't want to do something mean and tie a ribbon on a cat's tail, you just type in on YouTube dog or cat chasing tail and you'll see kind of how humorous this is for a cat just to do this and you're like, like what are you doing that's what the author of ecclesiastes wants us to look at our lives lived under the sun under the curse of sin take the drugs for example think think pleasure here drugs that boast of such great satisfaction some of you probably have taken some 
These drugs leave your mind and body so permanently unsatisfied. How's that for fulfillment? That some, maybe your very own friends right now are, are asking you to try. This thing is so great that those things themselves leave your body and mind permanently unsatisfied. Just ask the addict standing in the middle of the street begging to get enough money so they can just get one more dose of satisfaction. If you live long enough and meet enough addicts, you realize this is certainly no satisfaction. What, what about you guys looking for, putting, putting, putting your hope and looking for satisfaction in material things? You know, just think about uh, your own lives. Or you children who are here. You children who are here. If you're a child, raise your hand. Okay. What did you get last Christmas for, 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 from your presents? You guys even remember what you got? Sam remembers what she got. <clears throat> hey, if we just back up enough, two years, three years, and we remember tearing open that, that gift and thinking how wonderful that thing is, and then we're so zealous to protect it. Don't you dare touch my, you know, G.I. Joe thing or smelly markers that smell really well. Your, your leather boots, whatever the thing is that you tear open, you even know where that is right now? you have any more zeal in protecting that material gain that you once did? You know, we adults are exactly the same as you kids. Exactly the same. I don't know where my 1992 Honda Civic is, where I was so zealous to protect 103 horsepower. I don't know where it is. The Armani sweatshirt I saved up my lunch money to buy when I was like 14 or 15 years old. I don't know where it is. And I was zealous to try and protect that thing. The lesson for me, the lesson for you all, is that it must not be of very much worth if you're not still jealous about it. It must not be of very much worth if you're not jealous about it. Friends, if you pursue satisfaction in material stuff, let our children be our teachers. If some of their Christmas presents can't even keep their attention for a couple weeks, let alone till next Christmas, why would we think that the ones we buy for ourselves could do any better? Perhaps the ultimate problem is not with the object, but with our own hope and our own heart. We're hoping in the wrong things. For those of you guys who are too far above legacy, or sorry, too far above pleasure, maybe you're not a hedonist, one who pursues pleasure to give ultimate fulfillment, maybe you're grasping after legacy. The preacher has some advice to you. We seek to control our li- entire lives to, and, and desire to control so much, yet really we're in control of so very little. And the reminder of that is the next generation. Besides that, how long do people really remember you for who you really are? If you look at chapter 2, verse 16 there, a dose of reality. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How many of us even know who our great-grandparents were? I'm not talking about where they came from. And I'm not talking about what they did. I'm talking about who they are, what they stood for, what kind of person they were. You know, a, a sadness in my own life, which doesn't reflect any fault in my parents at all, is I don't even know the, know the names of my grandparents. This is all just a chasing after the wind. 
At some point in time, this chase leaves you right where you started. Are you weary of this chase? Well, having considered those things, I imagine some might say, well, okay, I'm not going to be a hedonist who pursues pleasure. I'm not going to try and store up treasures here on earth and bank on my bank account. I'm not going to try and store up treasures in my legacy. The solution to life, to satisfaction, will be found in avoiding adversity. That's the solution to life. You know, a, a peaceful existence. This is the hunker-down mentality where, where your life becomes one big exercise in precaution. Now, if you guys, if you guys are precautious and have a lot of caution as you go into various aspects of your life, that probably represents a little bit of you. My goal in life is to abso- uh, avoid adversity at all costs. <coughs> but can adversity really be avoided in this life under the sun, this fallen and sinful world? Uh, the preacher says no. He says it's everywhere. This is just reality. I mean, look at the list the preacher brings up beginning in chapter 4. He says that, that there is oppression by those who are in authority. So, so, so those who are oppressed, what does avoiding adversity mean for them? In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, Have you considered the tears of the oppressed and no one to comfort them? And, th- and then there are the abusive powers that have not yet been stopped. I mean, just think for a moment about the injustice going around in the world. Those who are caught in slave labor those who are trafficked, the poor who are oppressed from the wrong use of authority, those who suffer from systemic racial injustice. Should we give this good news, you know, if you guys believe in avoid adversity at all costs, should we give that good news to these people? Somebody stuck in slave labor? Should we encourage them to embrace that model and avoid adversity? Is that really going to help them make sense of their lives and the lives of those who have suffered before and then the lives of those who are going to suffer to come? Now, I recognize that that, um, some people, frankly, don't care about the situations of other people. They don't want to feel for for the plight of others. And so they think, well, that's them. I'm me. And if I just hunker down and just make it, then I'll be okay. But while there are a whole lot of questions that person ought to ask, like, if my hope um, fails to be good news for every human on the planet, is it really good news? Right? That would be a legitimate question to ask. The preacher here helps prick us with an adversity that cannot be escaped, and that's death. So we might run for a while and avoid adversity for a little while, but death always overtakes, according to Ecclesiastes. How's that for the sloganeers of avoid adversity? And I know talking about these things, um, especially on the first Sunday of the year, uh, can be a little forward. And in some cultures, even the talk of death can be a little offensive, and you're not supposed to do it lest death come, uh, as in their superstitious belief. But yet death is the chosen tool and topic of this preacher, Ecclesiastes. And it's meant to refine our hopes and our hearts. Death is the final calibrator of hearts and hopes. And here the preacher begs us to let it do its work in our lives. So in chapter 2, verse 16, go ahead and turn there. This is the first time the preacher explicitly brings up death. 
So remember, by this time, he's already said that vanity is a vanity of vanities, all is vanities. He's already giving us, given us a, samplings, a sampling of the world's best highs that come from throwing off inhibitions, in, let's say, drinking wine and getting drunk, obtaining and flexing the power to build cities, pleasures found in concubines, freedom that comes with lots of money. Uh, he's already spoken about the pride found in legacy and how that's hevel. And then he brings us to the thing that brings all of those pursuits, all of our endeavors, to full stop. It's death. As one author put it, for the first time in the book, but not for the last, the fact of death brings the search for fulfillment to an end. If one fate comes to all, and that fate is extinction, it robs every person of dignity and every project of its point. Friends, this calls you to put your quest for satisfaction on pause and do that right now, today, in order to consider what, what will come of your dreams and what will become of you. Uh, so he does this excellently in chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Go ahead and turn there. He says, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the window, windows are dimmed and the doors on the streets are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of the bird and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. And the almond tree blossoms, and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desires fail because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanities. So he's just reading through, he's just writing and using symbolism to describe the end of life. And all the dominoes, once they've all been fallen and you reach the very last one, everything is finally hevel. Death has brought all endeavors to full stop. I recognize this book is not easy to grasp. It's not intended to. Ecclesiastes is, a, is very accurate, once again, in presenting what life lived apart from God is like. If we have no understanding of sin, if we have no understanding of the Creator, then we will forever be just rats in the cage. The question, then, is what are we to do when everything under the sun is heaven? In light of all this, if, if, if our lives just end up being like that and that's it, where's their hope? The Babylonians, in their wisdom literature, they actually presented a solution. They wrote, they, their authors wrote similarly to this, um, but there's a very different solution. In, in their dialogue of pessimism, the solution proposed for life under the sun is murder-suicide. Now, those of you who are working in healthcare and counseling, you know that there are many people who embrace this solution, unfortunately. 
dealing with the seemingly meaningless existence by erasing their very own, and that's freedom and meaning. But friends, life under the sun and the world's solutions, I mean, and then realizing that people actually deal with the world in those ways, murder, suicide, doesn't that just scream that this world is not the way it was supposed to be? When we turn on the news and see what's going on, right? I mean, our very own insatiable desires remain unmet by the world. And those of you who deal with addictions know that this is true. This is not how things are supposed to be. And it ought to leave us asking why. You guys remember that? The author writes of a very real uh, pessimism. Is he has a, a relatively accurate pulse, a very accurate pulse on the way the world is lived apart from God. And it's supposed to leave us asking why. According to the Bible, the explanation is sin. This is life under the sun. According to Romans 8, this world has been subjected to frustration because of sin. And Ecclesiastes is a blunt, a blunt description of this life under the curse of sin. And scripture says that the solution to life under the sun lived apart from God is found in trusting the only son, Jesus Christ, the one whom all things were created through, the one to whom everything was created for. So fulfillment can never be had in the things of the earth in this limited life, but joy and meaning can be found only in living in the fear of God. Joy and meaning can be found only in living in the fear of God. If you're taking notes, that's the large point, number two. Look at what he says in the last chapter of the book there in 12 to 8, which we've already read. I mean, it captures so well what, where we ought to find meaning. It says, remember your creator. That's interesting, isn't it? After taking us on all of the world's highs and giving us a sampling platter of, of everything that the world could offer, he says, remember your creator. Throughout all of this vanity and the pursuit of meaning and significance under the sun, the preacher wants us to never forget that life is to be lived in the fear of our creator. Now, it's not like living in fear of your dad who flies off the handle and can never control his anger. That's not the fear here that's talking about. Here, this fear is one who acknowledges that God is our creator God and life is to be lived in him and in obeying his commands. This is, the, this is the framework here that he points us to in the midst of all of this hevel. So in 8 verse 12, go ahead and flip over there, 8 verse 12. He says, I know it will be well with those who fear God. I know it will. That's confidence there, even though he knows that everything here in this world is so transitory. He, he says, I know it will be well with those who fear God. And then turn over to 12 verses 13 to 14. In concluding the whole entire letter, he says, and I love the way he says this here, says with, says with such finality and confidence, the end of the matter, after seeking, to, seeking pleasure in all of the things of the world, video games, meaning in friends, all the books you could possibly read, all the pride that could possibly come, the end of the matter. All has been heard. I've heard every single thing. Everyone who could possibly tell me where wisdom and pleasure could be found. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. But what quality of God allows Christians to avoid the road of permanent depression 
suicide or adopt the it-doesn't-matter philosophy here in this life with all of its joys and difficulties while living under the sun. What quality of God allows us to do that? To have hope. The first thing is God is sovereign. God is a sovereign God. It is true that when we look over all of the earth, we might see that the same things could happen, uh, the same things that do happen to the righteous, they might also happen to the wicked. But that does not mean that God cannot be trusted. Ecclesiastes actually says that God alone can be trusted. Out of all the things of the earth, out of all the stuff that ever exists, God alone is the one to be trusted. And as chapter 3, verses 1 to 8 says, there, if you flip there, it says that God is over the seasons of life. He has appointed a season for everything. And we ought to trust Him. So not only is God a sovereign God, God is a judging God. So it is also true that it might appear absurd that sometimes the righteous and the wicked share the same fate. But this does not mean that we need to call into question the wisdom of God. I mean, God has never promised that everyone will suffer immediate judgment. If He did we would all be doomed. There would be no chance at all for one to repent and believe and to trust in Jesus Christ. He's just never promised that. But we don't need to lose hope thinking that the righteous has, that righteousness has somehow eluded God and God has just sort of fumbled righteousness out of his hand. But in fact, we can be sure that God in his righteousness has appointed a season according to his own time for judgment. Look there in 1214. For God will bring every act into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He will indeed judge. Another thing that gives us hope here, instead of moving towards suicide and despair or it doesn't matter, God is a God who renews. God is a God who renews. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that God is renewing this world uh, that has been subjected to frustration and sin, and the world groans for this renewal. We ourselves too groan for this renewal as Christians. We've been renewed by the power of the Spirit and now we await our, the full renewal of ourselves and the world. That's how he begins this whole renewal process, by renewing people's hearts. So what delivers us from the cycle of meaningless in this limited world is the God who is outside of it. The sovereign God. The God who renews. The one who intended it to be perfect and, the, and uh, the one who intends that it will indeed be perfect despite our sinfulness. That's another thing, too, that gives us hope. God is a God who identifies with sinners. And he does this through his son. Though we have sinned, though the world was subjected to frustration on account of our sin, his son Jesus enters into this reality, mind you, this reality and meaninglessness, all the stuff that is hevel, in order to redeem it. He suffered at the hands of those who sinned and thought satisfaction was to be found in the stuff of the earth as opposed to the very one who created it. And he suffered on account of those very same sinners in order to save them from their sin. On the cross, he bore the punishment that we deserved that we might be free, that we might be renewed, forgiven, brought back into relationship with God who is outside of this seemingly meaningless world, there to find joy and meaning and restoration. And so he identifies with us and dies for us so that we would remember 
our creator. I mean, he makes himself so clearly known so that we would remember. The next thing that gives us hope, God is a God who satisfies. So he is a satisfying God who has designed us to find satisfaction in him alone. And he calls you, if you have not, he calls you to abandon your vain pursuit of satisfaction in this life and all the stuff and to find satisfaction in him who loves, him who saves and him who satisfies in the gospel. And our experience again tells us this, that God alone satisfies his eternal God. C.S. Lewis teaches us, he says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Isn't that glorious? If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And folks, that's a distillation of Ecclesiastes 3.11. Go ahead and turn over there. Ecclesiastes 3.11. It says there, God has put eternity into man's heart. He puts eternity into our hearts, which is a very real sense that this is not all there is. And even our cravings tell us that. Our insatiable is supposed to be fulfilled by God the unquenchable, the inexhaustible, at whose hand, Psalm 1611 says, are pleasures forevermore. So we know that God is a God who satisfies. We know too that God is a wise God. So it might seem right now that everything in your life is hevel if it's lived apart from God, but God, you see here, he's working out his course of life and his sovereignty Working to judge, working to save, working to identify, working to satisfy. And he does it in his own perfect way. Ecclesiastes is a bit like Job in this respect. It reminds us in the midst of suffering that God knows what he is doing. Eternity has been placed in our hearts so that we might find God and live in his wisdom. But yet, too, his wisdom is inexhaustible. We cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. In 8.17 it says, Then I saw the work of God that man cannot find out, the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. This should encourage us, recognizing a bit of real pessimism of life lived under the sun. Which is why, if you've noticed, sometimes, you know, we're not all that happy. We're not that much of a happy, clappy bunch. I mean, I love, I love singing and rejoicing. Um, but, you know, for, for, the, for the worship team to go up there and strike the guitar with, you know, uh, distortion and say, yeah, you know, happy day. In some ways, while I, I enjoy that song, in some ways that actually doesn't make sense of human experience all the time. So to pretend that this life is actually peachy keen would actually be to go against what, clear, what uh, Scripture says is clear. This is real life. This is real sinful life where injustice happens and death happens, but yet there is hope in our great and wonderful Creator. Let's conclude. Recognizing that we've been made in the sovereign Creator's image who calls us to find joy and meaning in Him, what does this make of our toil? Does this mean that you don't, you, you don't need to show up to work tomorrow because everything is heavy anyways? What should we make of our toil? We come to see that our toil, our labor is God-given. And therefore, we can indeed enjoy it. Ecclesiastes here, it never rips labor and toil. The preacher just tears apart the fact that many of us trust in it for satisfaction and all that it brings. 
whether it be money, comfort, security, etc. That's what he's tearing apart, not toil and labor itself. So look over at 224 and 25. This is really helpful for tomorrow when you show up to work. He says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Why? Didn't he just say that everything is meaningless? Well, yes, but that was live, life lived apart from God, life lived under the curse. Look what he goes on to say about toil. He says, This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Look over at 3, 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift. When our creator calls us to trust in him and then gives us things to put our hands to and to go on and enjoy them, we are freed from any sort of permanent pessimism, permanent cynicism, permanent skepticism, which is why Paul, who lives for Jesus Christ and has meaning in Christ and joy in Christ, can say what he does in Colossians 2, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, anything you do, whatever you do, now that you're a Christian, you found life and satisfaction in Jesus' death and resurrection for you. He says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that there is indeed meaning and joy found in you. We thank you, Lord, that the Bible doesn't just simply stop at meaninglessness, but even where Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, we have it points, it points us to Jesus Christ. We recognize, Lord, that this life is a life lived after Genesis, a life lived in the fall of man, under the curse. Well, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed the God who is renewing all things. Father, we pray that you would help us battle. We know, Lord, that many Christians continue to struggle with depression. We can think of very well-known Christians who have done so, like Martin Luther, like John Piper, these men who needed to cling to joy and who only found joy in the cross and in the message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that both of those men and even some believers here and amongst our number, even though we might struggle too with this depression, we thank you, Lord, that we are a testament to the fact that we, not, we don't have to live in this permanent pessimism. But we can indeed find hope in Christ. Make us a hopeful people, Lord Jesus. We pray, too, that we wouldn't be um, putting on masks and pretending as if, pretending that our lives are uh, better than they truly are or life in this world is better than it really is. But Lord, we pray that we would represent life faithfully, but then at the same time that we would wonderfully represent the joy and rest found in Christ for weary souls. Lord, we pray that if there is anybody here who does not know you, that they too would come to you knowing that there is rest for weary souls in Christ who died on the cross for sin. In your name we pray, amen.